insight, innovation, transformation. Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Hello, everyone. Today is March 29th, 2022, and welcome back to the Change Healthcare Capital Connection Podcast. I'm Deanne Kasim, and with me today, as usual, is our state health policy team, Steve Brennan, Angela Evat, and, and Matt Kepler. Hello. Hey guys, we are also joined today by a special guest, Cece Connolly, who is the president and CEO of the Alliance of Community Health Plans, or ACHP as it's known, the trade association for nonprofit community health plans. A prominent voice in healthcare for over 15 years, Connolly has served as a national correspondent for the Washington Post and a leader at international consulting firms, including PwC and McKinsey. She is the co-author of Landmark, the inside story of America's health law and what it means for us all, and has been published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Modern Healthcare, and THCB, also known as the Healthcare Blog. Connolly was included on Business Insider's inaugural list of DC healthcare power players and was also the first non-physician to receive the prestigious Mayo Clinic Plumber Society Award for promoting deeper understanding of science and medicine. Additionally, she is a woman of impact founding member, a Pharmacy Quality Alliance board member, and formerly a Whitman Walker Health Board member. Cece, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about ACHP, uh, your journey towards ACHP, and uh, what you're working on now? Well, I'd be happy to. Uh, I like to tell folks that I'm basically still an ink-stained wretch. Uh, I started my journalism career a very long time ago in New England and was in journalism for 25 years. I did get the healthcare bug while I was at the Washington Post and covered an awful lot of the healthcare debates here in Washington, right on up through the Affordable Care Act. And it was at that point in my career that I then went on to McKinsey to help them set up their Center for Health Reform, followed by PwC's Health Research Institute. And that brought me to ACHP about six and a half years ago now. So I'm also in a DC, uh, swamp dweller, as I like to say. Um, but the Alliance of Community Health Plans, uh, I'm thrilled because it is not just a day job, but a passion project for me. All of our members are nonprofit provider aligned regional health plans. Many of them are the large integrated systems that you all know well, whether I mention uh, UPMC or Geisinger or Health Partners or Kaiser Permanente or Baylor Scott and White all around the country. But we also have members that perhaps don't have a large hospital or health system per se, but they have those very tight relationships with the providers. And we believe strongly in that model. We think that by having the plans and the, and the providers working really in a tight, synchronized, coordinated fashion, 
gets us much closer to value in healthcare, which we care very deeply about, moving away from fee-for-service and driving towards those health outcomes that really should be the measure of success. So I'm so fortunate to be at ACHP, and I love that we partner with Change Healthcare. Excellent. Thank you for being here, Cece. What an interesting journey and mission at ACHP. And by the way, I really did enjoy uh, reading all of your columns for the Washington Post when you were over <laughs> there. So, so thank you for that. Um, we have a lot of interesting things to cover today. Just a few things going on in the health policy world on the state side, as well as the federal. Um, on today's menu, an update on key policy trends in the states which Angela, Steve, and Matt will get to, specifically highlighting key developments around mental health, social determinants of health, Medicaid eligibility, and AI regulation. Uh, later, Cece and I are going to discuss some of the federal front topics, including the future of telehealth, particularly around mental health and parity and what that all means, advanced premium tax credits and the ACA exchange health plans, and also what Cece just touched on, the future of creating more value in the healthcare system. But first, I'm going to turn it over to the state team. Great, thanks, Deanne. Um, so let's get started. Um, you know, the state team is looking at a lot of state policies, um, particularly as um, we're starting to wind down, um, hopefully with the public health emergency. And one key thing that we've been looking at, uh, CC, is Medicaid. And I'm sure you guys are looking at that too, in terms of what trends we're seeing uh, in states on Medicaid. In particular, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Medicaid and unwinding the public health emergency. And just to give some background to our listeners, um, to help preserve Medicaid coverage during the pandemic, the federal government signed into law one of those first acts to respond to the pandemic, the Family First Coronavirus Response Act. And it required states to provide continuous coverage for Medicaid enrollees until the end of the month in which the public health emergency ends. Um, in exchange, states received enhanced federal funding uh, to keep uh, members uh, with benefits and coverage. Um, as we potentially uh, end the, in, uh, the, uh, the public health emergency, so we're ne nearing that end, hopefully, <laughs> states are considering plans on you know, how they'll start processing renewals. And, and what that means is, you know, determining if individuals are still eligible for Medicaid benefits. Um, and in particular, on March 3rd, CMS issued updated guidance to states to help promote the continuity of coverage and really guard against uh, inappropriate terminations. Um, and one of the, the big changes on that guidance was that CMS will allow states up to 12 months to initiate its renewals of, of all enrollees and an additional two months to complete the renewals and other actions. But, you know, how, you know there, there are still concerns that a significant number of the estimated 82 million Medicaid customers will lose coverage. And, uh, a recent survey also estimated that only about 27 states have determined how they will prioritize outstanding eligibility and renewal actions. So wanted to, to chat with you, Cece, a little bit about, you know, what are our health plans thinking and in terms of what state Medicaid agencies might do and plan to really make this transition um, uh, a smooth process? 
Well, Angela, I, I'm so glad that you're raising this topic on, on today's podcast because it is so important. And we really are talking about vulnerable working Americans and uh, families uh, who were the millions of people that you mentioned who moved on to Medicaid throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And so their states need to approach this with great care. And there are a few things that we are trying to highlight and recommend. One is phasing out the enhanced FMAP. You talked about that those increases in payments during the public health emergency. And we wanna make certain that there's not an abrupt cutoff in funding, um, but much more of a, a glide path, if you will. Another thing that we're recommending is that states ensure redeterminations are conducted in chronological order and that they place particular emphasis on safeguards for mothers and children so that we can all prioritize continuity of coverage for those individuals in particular. And then we're thinking a lot about consumer outreach. You know, this is a population that may change addresses. They may not all be on email. Um, some of them may not have uh, smartphones, for instance. So it's a population that you have to sometimes get especially creative about communicating with them. And then you need to make sure that communications are very clear, that they provide uh, guidance for individuals who may be facing a change in their status, and really lays out uh, steps that they can take and where they can go for helpful information. So I can certainly tell you that all of our plans that have managed Medicaid coverage are spending a great deal of time and energy right now thinking about those effective communications, working with their state partners to ensure that we are not going to have millions of people fall through the cracks and become uninsured once again. Because as you know, Angela, so many of the individuals that got coverage through Medicaid, they've seen their health improve as a result of that. So we don't wanna fall backward. I'd also just mention that um, states need flexibility to um, be sure that they have plenty of sources of um, beneficiary data. So for instance, something like the SNAP program is another um, good way to target the right individuals when we reach this transition period. That's a bit from the perspective of the state plan. And I'm happy to get into you know, what some of our own members are doing if you'd like. Yeah, I think those are some, some really good tips. Um, I mean, what I'm hearing you say, it really needs to be that partnership between the state um, as well as the health plans. Um, I, and I think you touched on a really interesting point in terms of flexibility around data and benefits that are available uh, to these members. Um, and I think that transitions nicely to my colleague, Steve, who wants to talk a little bit about social determinants of health and, uh, and payers. Thank you, Angela. And hi, Cece. Uh, this is a topic that really does 
segue nicely from the previous one in the sense that you know so much of Medicaid involves seeking ways to address the differences in in uh, social determinants, you know, the communities of uh, minority communities and lower income communities that are struggling to make it to doctor appointments, uh, have follow up care, stay informed on their health conditions, and then also lifestyle factors. And, and over the past couple of decades, there's been a growing body of research and recognition that those social factors, whether it's housing, transportation, uh, food insecurity, and others are really significant factors in determining whether a community uh, and or individuals are, are healthier. And so uh, we've kind of reached a point now, particularly with the pandemic, uh, really shining a bright light on the, the disparate impact uh, of a disease such as COVID has on those communities. We really moved into a, a, a stage of really states in particular, and I think also the federal government trying to figure out how to operationalize the social determinants into the healthcare system, whether it be uh, the providers, uh, organizations, population health, and, and also payers. And you've seen, for example, in California with CalAIM, uh, the, the Medicaid reform initiative there, really, really trying to address the social determinants through structures that have previously not existed. And we've seen other states do it uh, as well uh, in the past. And so, um, you know, as we move forward, there are a number of states trying to experiment on how to really get at building into the structure of the healthcare system, the social determinants. And uh, so far this year, there have been a handful of bills that are, that are currently in play. Um, and some of them are actually addressing uh, the payer community and, and requiring that, for example, a bill in, in California requiring that would require that uh, insurers collect and assess social determinants data and then build that into their uh, premium and cost sharing and other utilization uh, initiatives. So I think there's a whole range of, of different efforts out there, whether it's pilots, whether it's payers, whether it's Medicaid reforms, population health that are really trying to get at and more accurately capture those factors that are in many cases of greater significance than um, you know, some of the things we've historically viewed as, as drivers of healthcare costs and, and health. Um, and so my question, I guess, for you, Cece, is uh, sort of thinking about your membership and, and this evolution of the social determinants and how it can and, and should be used. Uh, what states, from your perspective, are leading the effort in terms of Medicaid and public health programs, as well as even into the commercial insurer uh, industry uh, as far as addressing social determinants and, and um, where do you see this potentially going in the next couple of years? Yes, yeah, Steve, those are, those are such terrific questions. Not, not easy answers, uh, but a few thoughts here. And I, I'm gonna humble brag on so many of our community health plan members. You know, they've been interested in social determinants of health before SDOH had a name or was sexy. Uh, you know, it's um, sort of inherent in the fact that they are community based and they are nonprofit and they tend to operate on margins of about one to two percent. So for a long time, they've seen these connections and they've tried to work with partners in their communities to address them. So issues around 
uh, food insecurity, transportation. They've, they've long been dialed into that and doing what they can. At the same time, I think it's a little unrealistic to expect that the health sector is going to solely address what are major structural problems in our country for decades. I mean, we are fundamentally talking about poverty, racism, biases, uh, you know, the economic inequities in our country are getting farther apart, not closer. And so the health sector has a very valuable role to play in all of this. Um, but we need to make certain that this is going to be a comprehensive national effort that incorporates uh, the food industry, for instance, that looks at workforce and um, pay gaps and racism. So, it, you know, it is really uh, the big, broad, sprawling challenge. Let me mention, though, maybe, Steve, a couple of really um, very specific ways that we do see our health plans attempting to get at some of these challenges. So in Pittsburgh, UPMC has actually started a program that uh, is now off the ground and going quite well, in which UPMC hires its own Medicaid enrollees to work for UPMC. And in many instances, there's training associated with this, uh, transition uh, to being back on the job. And then of course, transitioning those individuals from Medicaid health insurance over to employer-based coverage and all of the panoply of benefits that come with that job. So that to me is a terrific, tangible, smart approach by one of our leading members. Um, up in Wisconsin, in the Marshfield area, Security Health Plan noticed that maternal health, especially in its Medicaid population, was a real pain point. And so Security right now is running a pilot doulas program as a way to, at an affordable price tag in its Medicaid line of business, improve maternal health and obviously health of those newborns. And then one more just to mention, Steve, in, Mich in Mich Michigan, we have Priority Health, which is part of Spectrum Health. And they have a specific diabetes prevention program for Medicaid members. And this happens to be free. And the idea is to really inculcate and educate that group with healthy habits that can prevent or reduce the risk of type two diabetes. Uh, much of that, of course, is around food and exercise, which are certainly central to social determinants of health. So while I don't think that the health industry can solve this alone, there are pieces of the puzzle that make a lot of sense and partnerships are critical. Those are terrific examples, CC, and, and, and clearly there's a lot of work that's, that's been done by your members and is ongoing, and, and they've been a leader in, in many communities in this area. 
Um, and and really a, a big part of this is data and analytics and you know the being able to uh, evaluate and pull data from different sources and that's certainly something that change healthcare does and uh, one of the areas that we've been we've been really exploring and 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 monitoring is the development of regulation and and legislating and and around artificial intelligence and automated decision systems and and I'm going to hand it over to Matt uh, Kepler to talk about that issue and, and kind of explore that space. Thanks so much, Steve. Um, over the past several years, the interest in the state policy related to artificial intelligence, algorithms, automated decision systems, it's grown. And so have the number of pieces of state legislation. And this opportunity for these states to file these bills has really been due to the fact that there's been inaction at the federal level. And so they've decided to kind of fill that void. But before we jump into what we've been seeing this year, I just wanted to provide a little background on how AI is applied you know, within healthcare. It really improves the patient experience by assisting in the clinical review of data beyond what an individual clinician may be able to, to see. So it would enable better um, care outcomes, reduce waste, lower cost, and improve efficiencies. Um, it really can help physicians make quicker and more accurate diagnoses and better understand complex medical cases and patterns of disease. So that gives you a sense a little bit about how it's being used. So now back, flipping back to what the states are looking to do, they're really looking at different concepts that kind of assume the end user or a consumer may face bias or inequitable treatment in the process, particularly as it relates to healthcare. So some of the examples what we're seeing in the bills this year, they have definitions or provisions that they, what they do is they identify an entity type and then they would talk about the restriction or prohibition provision of the artificial intelligence algorithm or automated decision system. Some of the examples that we've been seeing of the entities that they're looking to govern include controller, processor, insurers, covered entity or businesses. And then some examples of the prohibitive foci are that the ADS might result in a denial. So that's one section. The second one is algorithms or the automated system. It might discriminate based on a protected class. And then the third kind of variety that we've been seeing this year is artificial intelligence enabled profiling that may result in a bias. And I thought if I pulled a couple of the bills that we've been watching um, this year, just I thought I would start with New Jersey as an example. They have a couple a pieces of legislation that are in committee right now that give an example a little bit of what I was referring to. So one of the bills, it, it uh, provides that it's unlawful to discriminate for an automated decision system against any person who's a member of a class. And that relates to, to really some key areas in terms of, uh, you know, uh, credit, uh, insurance coverage decisions, or even the provision of healthcare services. So that's one side. On the other side, we've got a refile of uh, a bill that came in from last year that they, they've been calling the New Jersey Data Act. And essentially, this bill is uh, focused again on the consumer, making sure that any decision using automated decision making, which includes profiling, and might have a legal effect on the individual concerning that person uh, that, that they would not be subject to it if it's based solely, if the decision is based solely on the automated system. So these are just some ideas that are out there. The states are just getting 
kind of initially involved in this. They see the potential in artificial intelligence, but they're also concerned about the use of it as well. And so that's what kind of the, the common thread that we're seeing in a lot of these pieces of legislation. It's not just on the state level, the federal level as well, the Office of the National Coordinator and the National um, Artificial Intelligence Initiative Office, they've begun studying you know, the issues. They've included trustworthy AI as one of their pillars. They've been looking at developing um, different um, guidelines for it as well. And, and, and it's all around protecting individuals and their, their privacy. So there, there are many different parties that are looking at these issues from different perspectives. And we certainly expect the interest in the um, legislation to continue um, you know, in the years to come. We've put together some uh, concepts that we think um, are good policy considerations for this issue. Number one, protecting privacy and, and security. Number two, validating representativeness within the data that's used. Number three, providing transparency so that the training data that's used within those algorithms can help support those decisions. And number four, uh, an ongoing process of monitoring and revalidating to ensure that that process, that there's gonna be continued fairness, explainability and resilience in the AI models. So that's a little bit of a rundown of what we're seeing on uh, AI. And I'm gonna turn it back over to Deanne to uh, continue the discussion on some of the federal issues. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, team. Uh, I think we've seen how particularly with AI and, and algorithm decision models that, again, the technology is usually ahead of the policy. And as um, the ONC and state legislators try to get their arms around this, um, you know, the work continues. So thanks for that overview. You're listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're enabling a better, more efficient healthcare system. Whether you need to improve operational efficiency, optimize financial performance, or enhance the consumer experience, we offer the industry insight and innovative technology to help you meet your objectives. Learn more at changehealthcare.com. Shifting gears from state to the federal front, uh, I want to just set the table for our listeners because uh, I wanted to talk about telehealth and telehealth extensions and I wanna just set the table on what happened a few weeks ago with an omnibus funding bill that really funds the government through the end of September 30th this year, but also extends the flexibility extensions for Medicare that were granted during the public health emergency. Uh, right now, of course, that emergency as mentioned previously is going to expire in April. And we are anticipating it will be extended again until July. Anything after July is very unclear, but what this, funding bill did include is uh, 151 days beginning on the first day after the end of the public health emergency. That is for how long these additional flexibilities in telehealth. I'll give you one example. Any site, including the patient's home in the Medicare program, will be considered an eligible originating site for the delivery of telehealth services. Um, so definitely giving some more flexibility for patients and providers, including the payers that pay for the service, um, but, you know, five months is, is certainly a very defined period of time. And as the former administrator of CMS said, that genie for telehealth is out of the bottle. Um, consumers want it. Providers have integrated it. Where do we think the future for telehealth really resides? I know there's a lot of policy considerations. Um, a lot of folks at CMS and even Congress are looking for more data 
to study what should and shouldn't be covered for telehealth in terms of payment parity or coverage, insurance coverage parity. But Cece, I know this is um, a hot topic for you and your members and wanted to get your thoughts. Well, it sure is. And I think that this is another terrific example, Deanne, of where Washington sadly is behind the world, if you will, the real world, as I like to call it. If two years of telehealth delivery, successful, by the way, through this pandemic was not compelling enough to answer the myriad questions and criticisms around virtual care, uh, you know, it, I shudder to think what what would clear the bar, if you will. Um, this was not a pilot. It was not a demo. It was not some academic theory. This was real patients getting real care from real clinicians every single day. So it's now incumbent upon all of us in the health industry that see the tremendous value of telehealth to, as you point out, collect that data and really present it to policymakers. I think that that's possible, but it is urgent because as you say, right now the clock will start ticking at the end of the public health emergency and 151 days is not a lot of time. One of the things that worries me about that extension and we're grateful for it, but when you think about businesses, whether it is a physician group practice or a health system or a plan or a technology company, uh, they need time to put in place new mechanisms, networks, uh, educating their beneficiaries, doing product design and pricing. And that needs to happen sooner rather than later. And no smart business is going to make major investments if they don't think that the rules of the road are going to be clear in a few months. So it's, it's so important that we uh, bring that information and data and make the case to policymakers, and then hopefully make this either permanent or perhaps at a minimum go with the two-year window that MedPAC has suggested. Yes, I, I completely agree. Five months is really nothing in Washington, D.C. time. And you add to the fact that this is a midterm um, election year, which generally means we don't get nearly as much done because there is this thing called a campaign and election in the middle of all this. But um, I completely agreed with you. If data is what policymakers want, there certainly is a lot of data out there that the private sector can offer to start making some of these restrictions permanent. And also, as you mentioned, for the payers to start designing their insurance benefits, because of course we're talking about things like payment and coverage parity and how all of that will work. I think this is a great segue when we look at telehealth. And one of the things that I have heard time and time again in policy conversations is how perfect it is for mental health services, right? Because when you get mental health services, obviously there's, there's really not any uh, blood work or lab work or imaging studies. It's just, you know, a lot of mental health talk therapy, medication management if and where needed. And among the things that Congress is looking at in terms of healthcare this year, I know there's no shortage, but the two packages that seem to get the most uh, discussion right now on both sides of the aisle is number one, the Prevent Pandemics Act which is, of course, looking at the future of the public health system, as well as shoring up things like supply chain. 
Um, and the other one is mental health. Mental health parity, of course, being one of those work streams. But among the five work streams that are being talked about in both the Senate and the House under the umbrella of mental health legislation is not only parity in coverage, but telehealth, youth mental health, uh, and substance abuse. So it's all these good things wrapped into one. Um, but Cece, I, I know that um, I've been part of discussions, you've been part of many discussions, including your members. You know, what are some of your members thinking about with regards to parity and how is this really gonna work for payers? who, so as you mentioned, have to think about benefit design and the necessary tools and the necessary networks, both virtual and in-person. And then when you look at the provider side of that coin, they need to think about staffing, virtual versus in-person care, the right tools for virtual care versus what might they need for institutional care in a mental health setting. Sure. So, uh, you know, a few th thoughts. I mean, first of all, just with respect to payment parity for um, telehealth broadly to begin with, our members throughout the pandemic have, in fact, um, approached this with payment parity because we certainly felt through the crisis and uh, at the beginning stages of telemedicine for a lot of players that was important to really get it off the ground. Now, as you think out um, over a period of three to five years, we ACHP have argued that there should be a transition to a value-based payment model, that telehealth is not separate medicine, it is a tool for medicine. And if you think about it that way, then it should be incorporated into risk-based uh, payment models. And it's up to the clinician and the patient to really think about what's the right approach in this particular circumstance. That entire philosophy should apply to mental behavioral health as well. And there should be savings down the road, not necessarily tomorrow, but if we do not start to think about a healthcare system in this country that is more affordable, not just accessible, but affordable to everyone, you have to look for efficiencies. And the use of virtual care, and that includes, by the way, Deanne, remote monitoring. It includes asynchronous communications with your uh, clinical team. It includes potentially group visits in some cases, uh, sending a photo to a dermatologist, getting your lab work back through your email, all of those aspects of it, pre and post-op. I talked to surgeons that are now doing their pre and post-op virtually. There should be savings in some of those approaches. With respect to mental health, Clearly, uh, I mean, we had parity legislation passed many, many years ago. I understand and appreciate there's still frustration that that is not always the case in parts of this country. Part of it has to do with a shortage of practitioners in some region, regions. So that means we need to look to the federal government to invest in more training of those practitioners. We need to think about possibly burnout of those clinicians who are uh, up against such stressful conditions in their jobs day in and day out. And we need to think about care delivery models that may be a little bit more creative and innovative to sort of reach more patients with the resources we have. 
Those are all excellent points. And I really appreciate you bringing up the idea of how do we tie all of this telehealth, mental health, et cetera, remote monitoring into a value-based model. That's something that um, I've actually been in conversations with um, with in terms of Hill staff. I know it's something we've discussed. Uh, we're a member of the Healthcare Leadership Council, so I know that's been discussed in some policy conversations there. And that, in my mind, is, you know, besides the technology usually being ahead of the policy, at this point, it's, it's more than that. It's tying it into how we, we reimburse and why we reimburse the way we do to really incentivize better outcomes, tying this all together. So I think that's an excellent, um, excellent segue um, into one of the other things I wanted to talk about was getting insurance coverage that lasts. I know we, we spoke at the beginning of this podcast about the Medicaid eligibility redetermination and how important that is. Well, one of the other things that was granted during this last two years of COVID was increasing the, um, the advanced tax credits for ACA plan coverage. That is, of course, due to expire I have not heard that there's a real big appetite to extend that, although again, I caution it's a midterm election year and things can be a little, um, little last minute or sometimes crammed into a lame duck session at the end of the year. But I know this is an important issue. It's an important issue, not just for your membership, but for other stakeholders and, and even technology companies like, like us who are helping plans uh, process this on a technical basis. You know, in your mind, Cece, what are the what do the policymakers really need to think about in regards to this decision? You know, Dan, you've been in DC circles for a, a long time, and probably we should say that nothing you know surprises us, us at this <laughs> at this juncture. But I got to tell you, it's a little bit of a jaw dropper to me that this has fallen off of the agenda. Uh, you know, earlier this year, I thought there was fantastic and well-deserved support for extending those increased subsidies. Uh, because again, you're talking about working families being able to access affordable coverage and care. And one of the great success stories uh, of the past year has been the fact that we have started to bring that uninsured number down and we've seen a, a connection to improved health, things like cancer screenings, for instance, when you have that coverage. So why this administration and this Congress would want to stop to, to step back from those successes right now and run the risk of increasing the number of uninsured is curious to me from a substantive point of view, and it's curious from a political point of view. So I guess with all of that, I'm still thinking and hoping very much and urging that Congress do go ahead and extend those because Right now with inflation rising the way that it is and everyone really looking very carefully at pocketbook issues, I think that this would be a great triumph for Congress and the administration to be able to assure millions of Americans they can continue to afford coverage and care. I completely agree. It seems like uh, just a year ago, uh, there was a lot of discussion about how important it was not to have 
an excessive number or, or a drastic increase in the uninsured because that was a public health story, right? You know, folks that can't get COVID care or access to care, regardless of even if it's COVID or not, it could be trauma in the middle of COVID, but that now puts more folks at risk for an infectious disease that was affecting so many people. Do you think some of this might be COVID fatigue impacting this? Yes, I do. I, I And, um, you know, also the ongoing partisan tensions in this town and and on Capitol Hill. And we've certainly know that there's a lot of um, jousting that goes on when mm -hmm. uh, Congress is thinking about some major pieces of legislation. As you point out, maybe this gets slipped into lame duck legislation or reconciliation package that would only require Democrat votes to pass it. But again, I am a little surprised that Democrats are not eager to be able to go home and say to their constituents, don't worry, we have ensured that you're going to have peace of mind. I agree with you. And you're absolutely right. This might be one of those things where I've heard the phrase, any moving vehicle is the vehicle for me. So <laughs> maybe this is something that gets tacked on to some, some piece of legislation that moves either before the midterms or, or just after. We can certainly hope so. Um, so pivoting towards the big, the big topic in the room, the one that I think multiple stakeholders have struggled to really come up with a common definition of it, but it, it needs to happen. And that's the concept of creating more value in healthcare, more than just the value-based models themselves, although those certainly are important too, but you know, how are we defining value in healthcare? What does that really mean for policymakers, stakeholders, and certainly what does it mean for patients? Um, because I know I've heard this at least for five years running, you know, do patients really understand value in healthcare? So Cece, I want to throw that open to you because I know you've got a lot of thoughts on this topic. <laughs> I do, and I'm, I'm probably going to get on a soapbox here for a, a second or two, Deanne, if you'll indulge me. But, um, you know, I, I frequently hear in this conversation, well, it depends on, you know, who you're asking. It's a different perspective if you're the employer or the government or the patient. Yes, of course it does. But at the end of the day, I'm a simple gal from Pennsylvania, and I define value as getting your money's worth. And Americans understand that. Americans understand that they take a look at their budget and they decide what kind of a car they can afford and how important certain aspects of that car are. And they make their value selection. They do it every day at the grocery store, Deanne. Do you want to spend the extra money on organic produce? Is that valuable to you? Then yes, you pay for it. And on and on we do that. Which restaurant we go to, what kind of beer we want to drink. So why the health sector with, um, frankly, government and journalists and think tanks and everybody else being complicit in making it so complicated is disheartening to me after all of these years, you know, and, and my soapbox is that fundamentally at the root of this problem is fee-for-service medicine. And the example that I'll give is all those years that I was a journalist, if I was sitting in the newsroom at the Washington Post today and the executive editor walked up to my desk and said, Cece, from now on, we are going to pay you by the word 
my stories would have gotten longer, not better. In fact, <laughs> some of them would have been old stinkers, to tell you the truth, because they would have gone on and on and on. Not because I'm a bad person or greedy or misbehaving, but because that would have been the economic paradigm that I was instructed to function under. And it is the same today. Our doctors and nurses and hospitals and clinics and labs and everyone else is essentially told the way that you make a living is by doing more not by keeping people healthy, not by keeping people out of the hospital, not by prescribing fewer drugs and doing fewer scans, but by doing more. So why would anybody be surprised that we have more, more, more and not better, better, better? So I really hope that we can inject uh, a little bit of common sense into this and some urgency because Healthcare is once again consuming about one fifth of our total economy here in the United States. And yet, if we look at comparisons to other countries similar to the United States, we do not overall across the population as a whole have nearly the same health outcomes. So true. Let me ask you, do you think that a lack of trust between different stakeholders might be part of the problem here? Oh, absolutely. And I will put in a plug for the ABIM Foundation and the um, Building Trust Project. We have been participating in that. And I certainly think that the pandemic exacerbated a lot of those trust issues. And you know, I guess you could say we Americans are having major trust issues with most of the institutions in our country. If you look at attitudes toward government these days and towards the media and on and on it goes. So we're at this very challenging time in history, not to get too, you know, deep here on, on this podcast, D.A.N., but you know, certainly uh, it's understandable and there's not going to be a quick fix. Trust is clearly an element of it, but I also think we are lacking in healthcare really those burning platforms that uh, consultants like to talk so much about, but it's basically uh, a threat to maybe your very existence if you don't start to do things a little bit differently. And that is where the government, not as a regulator, but as a purchaser could play a bigger role. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's going to take something of the authority of the government and or perhaps an industry-wide intervention, but that might be a topic for another podcast altogether. But uh, <laughs> I do appreciate your comments on that. Um, and so, Cece, I wanted to thank you so much for being with us today, and thank you to the team. I've certainly learned a lot about the things that your members are doing, and as well as uh, a lot of updates going on in the States. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, and again, uh, just thanks to Change Healthcare for the terrific partnership with the Alliance of Community Health Plans. Well, thank all the work that you and your members do. We appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners for listening to today's conversation. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to resources and contact information related to today's show. And stay tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast 
for more shows covering the healthcare and health IT topics that you care about. I'm Deanne Kasim, and I hope you have a great rest of your day and stay well. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're focused on accelerating the transformation of the healthcare system through the power of the Change Healthcare platform. We provide data and analytics-driven solutions to improve clinical, financial, administrative, and patient engagement outcomes in the U.S. healthcare system. Learn more at changehealthcare.com.